You may be seated. Please open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. To Ruth chapter 2. Um, Ruth is just to the right of the book of Judges, just to the left of First and Second Samuel. And so while you're turning there, let me remind you of kind of where we are in this uh, sermon series through the book of Ruth. The, the, the story, the true story, is set during the time of the Judges, which was not a time of moral and spiritual um, highlights in the history of Israel. You may remember that the last verse in the book of Judges is a good summary of how things were at that time. And that verse said, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so in Ruth chapter 1, we learn that the story of Ruth takes place during those days, the time of the Judges. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and there's now a famine in the land. And the family that's at, heart, at the heart of this story is led by a man named Elimelech, and he and his bride Naomi and their two sons, they leave Bethlehem in Judah. They leave to go outside the promised land into the, the pagan land of Moab, and they plan to be there just for a season. They're, they're going to ride out the famine there where they hope they'll find greener pastures. But in Moab, you know, tragedy strikes and Elimelech dies. They end up staying longer than they planned. And the, the, the two sons end up marrying Moabite wives. And the two sons die. And so in Ruth 1, then we see that there's been a lot of tragedy that's, that has met this family. And things have gone from bad to worse. And we're left with three widows. Mother-in-law, Naomi. Two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi then learns that the famine has ended back in the promised land, back in Bethlehem, that the Lord has provided food for his people, and so she decides to return home. And then one of the daughters-in-law, Orpah, decides she's going to stay in Moab, but the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, decides she's going to return with Naomi back to Bethlehem in Judah. Then once that decision is made, uh, we read uh, Ruth speaks some of the most famous and most beloved words, in, really in the whole Bible, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Ruth says to Naomi, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so also, if anything but death parts me from you. So Ruth chapter 1 comes to an end with Naomi and Ruth making it to Bethlehem just in time uh, for the beginning of the barley harvest. And then we're going to see today in Ruth 2 that they meet a, a man named Boaz. And so Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, you can say, yes, those are in many ways the, the main characters in, in the book of Ruth, at least from a human perspective. But, but who is really and truly the main character? It's not really Naomi, even though she's in the book, the story from first to last. It's not really Ruth, even though the book is named after her. You know, it's not really Boaz, even though we see that, that he, and we'll learn about him being referred to as a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, a hero um, in, the, in the text today. It's not really Boaz. And in fact, the, see, the, the main character in this story never actually has any dialogue. He never explicitly speaks, and yet he's always there in the background, but not merely in the background. See, I'm talking about, about God, 
is really the main character here who's sovereignly and graciously moving and working in all of these circumstances. In the big things and the, the many blessings that these folks encounter, as well as the, you know, the, the impossibly difficult tragedies they encounter in, in all of their lives, in Naomi's life, in Ruth's life, in Boaz's life, God's moving and working in all of these things for their ultimate good and his glory and his ultimately good purposes. You see, and I say all that because what we're going to see in our text is that Ruth just happens to pick the right field on the right day at the right time to meet just the right man who ends up changing everything for her. So it's important that you, you keep that in mind in the way that God is sovereignly moving and working and orchestrating this out as I read Ruth 2 for us. So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of that clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and as he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the, the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? 
And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love and for our good. And so we're going to, to do today what we've been doing with these previous sermons in Ruth. We're going to just walk our way through Ruth chapter 2, understanding the story. Okay, we can read through it really quickly, and we can miss some of the details. We don't want to do that. We're going to work our way through it. And then at the end, I'm going to draw a few applications to our lives for us to consider. So let's begin at the beginning in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, we're really going to meet Boaz later in the chapter, but here we're, we're told about him, and we're told a couple of important things. First, we're told that he's a relative of Naomi's dead husband. We're not told how close of a relative, but he's a relative, and that's significant. Okay, we'll come back to this more later, but remember, last week we learned about what, what is uh, written in Deuteronomy 25 in the Law of the Lord about a, a leveret marriage, which says that when a husband dies... And leaves his wife a widow, and without any male, without any sons to be heirs, then the man's brother or a close relative is to marry her and have sons to be heirs in the dead brother's name uh, to, to carry on his line and preserve the family's inheritance in the promised land, as well as it's a way to provide for uh, the widow who needs providing for. So we see in verse 1, Boaz is a relative, but at this point, we don't know how close of a relative he is. We also learn that Boaz is a worthy man. Do you see that? A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. A worthy man could also be translated a mighty man of valor. It could even be translated a, a manly man, a manly man of, of character. Or it could simply be a hero. This is a good man, a worthy man. Now, I know, you know in recent years, there's been some debate about, okay, how do we define true masculinity and true manliness versus toxic masculinity? And what I would propose is that the goal for a true man is to be worthy, to be worthy according to God's word, not, not perfect, no one's perfect, but to be worthy according to God's word of respect, of trust, worthy of bearing the, the heavy burdens that men are called to bear in our homes and in our church. And so you may ask, okay, well, Richard, okay, what's a worthy man like? Well, simply put, he knows and loves God. He knows and loves God's word. You know, our shorter catechism teaches us that the scriptures principally teach what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us, right? A, a worthy man, a good man knows who his God is. And he loves him. And he knows what duty 
God requires of him according to God's word. So a worthy man, a manly man, knows his God and knows how to live in God's world according to God's word. That's the kind of man Boaz is. In fact, later in 1 Kings 7, whenever David's son Solomon builds the temple, there's going to be two main pillars. One of those pillars is called Boaz, named after Boaz. He's a worthy man, a good man, a, a pillar of the Israelite community in Bethlehem. Now, after being introduced to Boaz, albeit before we actually meet him, we read in verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, verse 2 tells us something important about God and something important about Ruth. Okay, so first, we learn about God's love and his compassion and his concern and his care for the poor among his people. You see, in, multiple, in many places throughout the scriptures, God has made, he, he, he tells his people that accommodations are to be made for those who are in the land and who are hurting and who are needy and who are poor. That, 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 that his, because his people knows what it's like to be enslaved in Egypt and have no one really caring for them, no one providing for them, that now that they have been liberated from bondage and slavery in Egypt, they are to be a different kind of people. They are to make provision for the poor among them. And so we read about this in Deuteronomy 24 as well as Leviticus 19. And so look, look at Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, many of you guys know this. My dad was a farmer. And I'll tell you that whenever we were, it was harvest time, we never left anything behind. Never. That was not allowed. We never left anything on the edges. We never left, you know, leftovers behind us. But again, in ancient Israel, after the Exodus, this is, this is the word of God. This is the law for his people. And that was that they were to, to leave, leave the edges. They were to leave some leftovers for the poor who were willing to work, to come and to provide for themselves. And so when you look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth is asking Naomi, let me go and do that. She's asking, is it okay if I pick a, a barley field to go and to walk behind the workers in the field, to walk behind the reapers and, and pick up whatever they leave behind. And remember, right, Ruth 2, verse 2, tells us something about God, about his love and his compassion and his concern and his care for the, and provision for the poor, but it also tells us something about Ruth. You see, we see you know, her take this initiative. See, Ruth is a faithful woman. So think about this. I mean, she, she, she's a new believer, and she's in a new and a strange land. And she's a poor and destitute widow living with another older, poor and destitute widow. And she doesn't know. She doesn't know what tomorrow will bring. She doesn't know when her next meal is going to be. But she does know what God's word says about how God has made provision for poor widows like herself to go walk behind the reapers and glean from the leftovers. Therefore, Ruth asked Naomi for permission to do the next right thing that she knows God's word says. 
And for her living then, if you're a poor widow and it's harvest time, which it was, there is provision for you to go glean from the leftovers in the field. Now, before we move on, don't, don't miss a point here, right? Dear Christian, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, you don't have to know everything that's coming next. You don't have to know what tomorrow will bring or what next week will bring or next month or next year or the next 10 years. What you do need to do is do the next right thing. What is God's word clearly calling you to do today? right now, and you do that. You take the next step forward. You do the next right thing, and you do it with, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your pastor David Strain says, do your duty today and trust the whole weight of tomorrow into the hands of the God who governs all things in sovereign grace for the good of those who love him. And so we learn about Ruth. Ruth is committed to doing the next right thing. And so she asked Naomi about going to the fields. In the last part of Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, Naomi says, go, my daughter. So she sends Ruth to go do this. Now, we're not told why Naomi doesn't go with her. You know, perhaps it's because Naomi's too old to go. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's because Naomi is still, you know, eaten alive with bitterness and hardness of heart and heaviness of heart. And she's, she feels too, too downcast and too depressed to go with Ruth. But we don't know, but we do know is that Ruth goes to the field all alone. Okay, so look at verse 3. So she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. You notice that, right? Ruth just happened to show up in Boaz's field. Right? She just happened to. Now, that Hebrew text could be translated as, you know, that Ruth... Uh, the, the chance that chanced upon Ruth was that she came to Boaz's field, or as we might put it, as luck would have it. But we know that, that luck and chance have nothing to do with this, right? You know, the author of Ruth is being tongue-in-cheek whenever, whenever they say that she happened to show up in Boaz's field. Right? We clearly see God's sovereign providence at work, and the author is wanting us to not miss it. He's highlighting it. It's being highlighted for us. Look at verse 4. And behold, now behold means, okay guys, pay attention, this is important, don't miss this. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So you, so you see what's happening? Ruth just happened to be gleaning in Boaz's field, and then Boaz just happened to come to the field from Bethlehem just in time to see Ruth. Yeah, as luck would have it. Look, look how this happens. You know, David Strange says, this seemingly random decision to glean in this particular field at this particular time on this particular day will prove to have long-term significance for the future welfare of Naomi and Ruth that neither could have anticipated. The reason? God is sovereign and works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. The truth is, there are no insignificant actions, no throwaway moments, and that is the great adventure of the Christian life. We know that our times are in God's hands. We know that even seemingly random things, even the happenstances that happen to us, may prove to have significance for the glory of God and the good of his people that we could never have imagined. Okay, so look at verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, 
And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So here in verse 4, we finally meet Boaz and we see the way that he, he greets his workers. Now, before we move forward, often in the Bible, the way that someone is first introduced to us and or the first words that come out of their mouth, they're significant. They're telling us who this person is. And remember, we've already been told, Boaz, he's a worthy man. This is a good man, a manly man, a worthy man. He's a hero. And now we see, even during the days of the judges, whenever everyone does what's right in their own eyes, Boaz is a little bit different. Boaz is a man who knows God's word. Notice this, right? Boaz greets his workers with a call and response that echoes the ironic blessing from uh, Numbers chapter 6, right? And Boaz and his workers, they're quoting scripture back and forth to each other. Next in our story, we see that Boaz has a question for his foreman in the field. Look at verse 5. Boaz said to his, to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Now, the question is not, okay, who is she? The question is, whose is she? Now, I, I wish I didn't have to say this, because I know for some of you it'd be much more exciting if I told you, look how romantic Boaz is, and look how romantic this story is, and that this is love at first sight, he sees her in the field, he's smitten, and he wants to know who's her husband. But I don't think that's what this means. I think what he's, he, did he does take notice of her, takes notice of how hard she's working. What he's asking her, what he's asking this worker in the field is, okay, you know, who are her people? What's her last name? You know, which family does she belong to? Which clan does she belong to? Whose young woman is this? Then we see in verse 6, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. But he essentially says, Boaz, okay, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about this, this Moabite woman who, who showed up in town, like everybody in town's talking about her, you know, the one who came back with Naomi just the other day. Well, this is the one. And then that's, that, that foreman in charge of the reapers goes on to say to Boaz in verse 7, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So he's telling Boaz, listen, this woman... I've never seen anybody like her. I mean, she is a hard worker. She's been out here from the morning till now working like a dog. She's hardly taken a rest. But then, now we see you know, Boaz and Ruth actually interact, actually meet. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And so I hope, you know, as I read that, that you hear you know, Boaz's tone of kindness and respect as he addresses Ruth. Right? He addresses her as my daughter, which is how Naomi addresses Ruth all throughout this chapter. Right? My daughter, certainly a, a term of endearment and, and kindness. Also, perhaps indicating the, the age difference, the generation gap, but from Boaz to, um, to Ruth. And then Boaz goes on to invite Ruth 
to not even think about leaving his field and to glean elsewhere. See, he says, I'm concerned for your, your safety and your well-being, so stay in my field. Work among the members of my household. And don't worry about even getting too close to the men who are working in the field because I have personally ensured that your safety. In fact, you don't even have to bring water whenever you come back. You can drink all of our water. Just feel, drink as much water as you want. See, simply put, Boaz is treating Ruth like she's a member of his household. I mean, that, that's so much more. That's so far beyond what, what Ruth could have imagined would happen that day. Think about it, right? Just, I mean, a few hours earlier that morning, she, she, she hopes that she can find a field where an Israelite field, you know, landowner is going to allow her to glean after his workers and not run this Moabite off out of his field. She had just hoped maybe she could find a field. And here now she finds this man who's being so kind to her. Look at verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Right? I mean, you're being so generous to me. Why are you treating me like this? Now, perhaps, we don't know this for sure. It's not here in this chapter, but perhaps... Part of the reason Boaz was so kind and generous to Ruth, a foreigner from Moab, is because of who Boaz is. Right? Boaz's mother was Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute in Joshua 2, who, who like Ruth, also became a believer. And remember Rahab, she hid uh, the, the spies whenever Joshua um, sent them to scope out Jericho. And then Joshua 6 tells us that Rahab eventually left her people and settled among, lived among the Israelites too. You know, perhaps that's part of it. But Boaz plainly tells us the main reason that he is so kind to Ruth in verses 11 and 12. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, Boaz has heard Ruth's story. He knows of her personal tragedy and losing her husband. He knows of her love and her loyalty to Naomi. He knows how she's left everything and everyone she's ever known to come to a people in a place that she doesn't know. And you can tell by, by the way verse 12 ends with that benediction from Boaz in that blessing from Boaz to Ruth, that, that Boaz has heard of her faith and her trust in the one true God of Israel. And then we see in verse 13, Ruth says back to Boaz, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And then later that day, Boaz, he goes on to, to even further treat Ruth like she's a member of his household by inviting her to share in their household meal. And so we read about this meal beginning in verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Again, stop and think about Ruth's life earlier that morning, right? A poor destitute widow, hoping to just find a field that somebody will let her you know, pick up some of the scraps. And then later that day, here she is feasting, eating all that she can eat. And, and she's going to be sent home with, with a doggy bag of leftovers to take back home with her. 
right? So we continue to see Boaz's intentional and abundant, overflowing kindness towards Ruth. Okay, then look at verses 15 and 16. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Right, so even after all of Boaz's kindness, even after providing this feast for her, she still gets back and she goes back to the field to work some more. I mean, she's a faithful, dedicated, diligent woman, hardworking woman. And Boaz extends more grace and kindness to her by not limiting Ruth to the bare minimum requirements of the law. Right, the law said, let her walk behind all the workers and pick up what's left over. What we see here is that Boaz tells his workers, hey, Invite her to come and work among you. She doesn't need to be held and restricted to just the leftovers. Give her access to the very best of the crop. In fact, even more than that, I want you to intentionally leave bundles of grain that you've picked, leave those bundles on the ground on purpose so that she has an even easier time to get more and more grain. Okay, so we see in verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So Ruth, she works all day into the evening, ends up with about an ephah of barley. That would be about 29 to 50 pounds of grain. It's a lot of grain. It's several weeks worth of food for the average worker. I mean, it had been hard for Ruth to carry all the grain that she had gleaned. Right, so picture, picture a, a, a woman you know, lugging around like a 50-pound you know, bag of dog food right down the road from the field back into the city. Okay, or as Marcelo said, Ruth would have been an all-star caddy on the golf course. I mean, just be able to lug that, that bag around. And so, verse 18, and she took it up, went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit more later. But the end of verse 18 we see the second time Ruth 2 highlights how Boaz not only provided for Ruth, but provided an overabundance for her. How she was fully satisfied and had more to spare, had leftovers. We'll come back to that. Verse 19, her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Right? How do you have all this stuff? Obviously, someone has shown you favor. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. I mean, Naomi is stunned by all of the grain that Ruth has brought home. How has this happened? There's got to be a story. Tell me about it. In whose field were you working? And so we see in verse 19 and 20, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, I don't want to skip over this part, but this seems to be the first indication that Naomi's heart, which thus far has been, you know, hard and cold and embittered towards the Lord, seems to be softening, seems to be thawing. And here she speaks of the Lord's kindness, or in Hebrew, his hesed, his covenant kindness and covenant faithfulness to his people. And it's the first time she's noticing that perhaps even that, that God has not forgotten her. He has not forgotten her after all. I mean, do you see that? I mean, in chapter one, Naomi only sees hardship, 
and suffering and loss and calamity and heartache. And now she finally sees kindness from the Lord. Theologian Ian Duguid says, suddenly Naomi was beginning to see that the Lord was not out to get her. In fact, he was still able and willing to smile upon her, to show her covenant faithfulness in spite of her history of sin and rebellion. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning. My guess is in a room this size that someone needs to hear this. Dear Christian, I can assure you, the Lord is not out to get you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you with his, with his hesed love, this covenant love, this covenant kindness and faithfulness. He loves you. So look again at verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now think about why would she talk about the living and the dead? I think when she says about the living, she's talking about herself and Ruth and how perhaps the Lord is going to provide a kinsman redeemer for a leveret marriage to, to provide for Naomi and for Ruth and to provide uh, heirs in the line of Elimelech. When she speaks about kindness to the dead, uh, I think she's talking about then that, that leveret marriage and providing those heirs. And so this is why verse 20 goes on to say, Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, that Hebrew word translated redeemer is the Hebrew word goel, which means kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer was a relative who had four basic duties, and all of these duties had to do with some form of redemption on behalf of one of his relatives. So first, he had an obligation to buy back his relatives from slavery. Second, he had a duty to, to buy back land that one of his relatives had to sell because that relative got too far into debt. Third, he was to act as the avenger if one of the relatives was murdered. And then fourth, he had the duty of leveret marriage if a close relative left a widow without any male heir. Right? And we've been talking about leveret marriage a little bit last week, a little bit today. But again, Deuteronomy 25 says when a husband dies, leaves a widow without any sons, the man's brother or close relative, the goel, the kinsman redeemer, is to marry her and to have sons to be heirs in the dead brother's name, the dead relative's name, to preserve the family's inheritance in the promised land. And so in verse 20, Naomi says, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So we know that Boaz is a close relative, but he's not Elimelech's brother. He's merely one of the redeemers. Right? You see, there was an order or a ranking system, if you will, for the, the kinsmen redeemers. And at this point, it's not clear if there's another relative who has a greater obligation or who's ranked before Boaz regarding their responsibility to marry and take care of Ruth. Okay, more on that in weeks to come. But for now, look at verses 21 and 22. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So I think Naomi essentially says, you know what, Ruth? You should do what he says. Keep going back to Boaz's field. 
This is paying off for us so far. Keep doing it. Let's see where this relationship is headed. And then the chapter ends in verse 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. In the last sentence, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, in Old Testament narrative, there, there, there are no throwaway lines. Ruth's a short book. Right? The words are chosen carefully. So look at that last sentence of verse 23. Why would, why would we be told this? And she lived with her mother-in-law. Right? I mean, of course she lived with her mother-in-law. So why would we, would we be told this? The author of Ruth is reminding us that Ruth still does not have a husband. And that's an important part of this story. And it's an important part of the history of redemption. Okay, more on that later. This is the conclusion of Ruth chapter 2. Okay, so what do we do with that? What are we to think about? How, what difference should this make in our lives? Three things. First, this is a reminder of our call to have care and concern and compassion for those in need around us. Remember, right, Boaz, he's a worthy man, a good man, and we see this on display in how he cares for and provides for Ruth out of his own pocket. Listen to how Ian Duguid puts it. He asks this question, whom do you see? Are you consciously looking for those who are on their own? Do you have eyes to see the poor and needy in your own neighborhood, the outcast and neglected in your own church, or do they remain invisible to you? Boaz went far above and beyond his mere duty in order to take care of the poor and include this outsider. He took time and care to build ties of relationship with her and paid the cost of her provision out of his own pocket. Do we have a similar heart of compassion for those who seem to have little or nothing to offer us in return? Now, I mentioned, I phrased this point as a reminder to us to have care and compassion and concern for those in need around us, because I know that, that many in this room, you're doing this. I mean, this is one of the reasons why um, our church's Tumaini Orphanage in Kenya even exists, because of a heart to care for those in need. It's, it's the reason why our ESL ministry exists, and we have so many volunteers who keep that ministry running. It's the reason why we've been able to start and sustain these school partnerships uh, just north of us in Spring Branch for all of these years. It's the reason why you know, the, the, the angel tree um, out on Main Street only has a few gifts that you guys are going to go pick up in just a few moments. I mean, that's, that's the reason why all of that happens, right? And I know that many of you are doing, uh, volunteering with other ministries outside of our church, maybe even ministries that our church partners with, like the Kairos Prison Ministry and others. And many of you are even doing things on your own, not with another group of people, but you're just doing it because you want to, you care about people and you're trying to serve them and no one knows about it but you and the person who you're serving. And all of that's wonderful. Keep doing it. But I mentioned our orphanage and ESL and the school partnerships and Angel Tree and Kairos because these are all easy avenues, entry points for you to begin serving if you don't already have a place to serve. Second, this passage is a reminder of God's perfect timing and God's perfect providence. Remember, right, Naomi and Ruth, they just happened to arrive in Bethlehem for the start of the harvest. Wow, look at that. They, they just happened to be gleaning in Boaz's field. Who would have thunk it, right? Boaz just happened to come to the field in time to see Ruth. 
Well, Boaz just happens to be a close relative of Elimelech, right? I mean, one, one of the key themes and lessons in Ruth is that God is always working behind the scenes for his glory and our ultimate good. And guess what? The same is true in your life. It includes the big things. It includes the big, huge blessings. It includes the impossibly hard things. It includes the, the, the seemingly everyday, ordinary, mundane things that we overlook. I mean, remember back to, to how we affirmed our faith earlier in this service. Heidelberg Catechism, question answer 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, even you, even me, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, which means all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Right? We see that at work all throughout the book of Ruth. We see it. J.I. Packer said, the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces. Why, right, the, the, the events of Ruth 2 aren't due to fortune or chance or luck or fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one spiritual and eternal good. You put simply, dear Christian, God's fingerprints really are all over the details and the circumstances of your life. And the book of Ruth reminds us of this. Finally, we see in the book of Ruth there is a redeemer. There is a redeemer who points to the redeemer. Right? Boaz, he's a worthy man, a godly man, and he's even called a redeemer in Ruth too. Right? Boaz, the, the kinsman redeemer, for Naomi and Ruth is meant to point forward to the greater Redeemer who was yet to come, Jesus Christ. Right? Just as Boaz provided Ruth with more barley grain than she could eat, and even more than she could carry home, is meant to point us to Christ. I mean, do you realize that the one miracle outside of the resurrection that shows up in all four of the gospel accounts is the feeding of the 5,000? Where Jesus multiplies barley loaves for the crowd of thousands, and it's more than they can eat. And there's 12 basketfuls left over, more than they can carry home. You see, just as Boaz lavishly provided for Ruth, Jesus lavishly provides the grace we need for our salvation. Right? Never ever think that Jesus is some impoverished Savior who's, who's merely adequate. He does just, our sins here, he does just enough, just enough to kind of to cover it. He gives us an abundance of grace. That just as Boaz was a worthy man, a worthy kinsman redeemer who provided for Ruth out of his own pocket, right? He paid the cost. Jesus is the worthy redeemer who died on Calvary's cross to pay the penalty our sins deserve with his own blood. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he, God the Father, made him, that's Christ, our sinless Savior, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? The price of our salvation was for our sinless Savior to be made sin for us, 
to die in our place so that we might not be merely forgiven, though we are forgiven, but to be forgiven and made righteous, credited with his righteousness, washed clean, thoroughly clean with his shed blood, and then clothed with his robes of righteousness. Jesus, our truer and greater kinsman redeemer, willingly paid that price in full for us. See, friends, don't miss this. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in my heart. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in your heart, in our hearts. And so praise God this is true. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your word, and in particular today, we thank you for Ruth chapter 2, how this reminds us of how you have loved us and provided for us in our spiritual poverty with sending Christ to live, to die, to rise from the grave, to save us, that through his poverty we might become rich. Lord, thank you for how Ruth 2 teaches us and reminds us about your perfect timing, about your loving providence in our lives. Lord, thank you for how Ruth 2 tells us of a Redeemer who points forward to the ultimate Redeemer and your grace. Your grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Your grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Lord, write these truths upon our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.